This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hello, I'm Carl Pillmer. I'm the director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research, and I am very excited to invite you to a special edition of our podcast on doing translational research. As uh, those of you who regularly listen know, we often interview a researcher who's moving his or her empirical work into real-world settings, and we talk about how they do that and how they interact with community agencies and community partners and their advice for people interested in translational research. But we'd like to delve in today in our 20th podcast, so it's amazing that we've already done 20 of these, by talking with John Eckenrode who in the social and behavioral sciences has been a leader in the area of translational research, has been doing translational research before it was actually given that name. John is a former director of the Bronfenbrenner Center and a very highly valued colleague. He was trained in social psychology and he is a professor of human development in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell. He is the Associate Director uh, of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research Now, and he's the Founder and Co-Director of the National Data Archive on Child Abuse and Neglect. His own research has involved child abuse and neglect, the effects of preventive interventions, translational research, and stress and coping processes. And we're going to talk about the issue of what translational research is and what it might mean for folks in the social and behavioral sciences, I will add that John has taught for a number of years a course uh, on the topic of translational research, too. So, John, welcome to Doing Translational Research. Thank you, Carl. And it's great to have you with us. Well, let's let's start with an issue that I have encountered in my years as director now, with people asking me in almost every presentation what translational research is. I, I would add as an anecdote that we have had events where someone showed up who does literary translation who did not understand, who thought we were doing research on that. So I, I'm curious as to whether you think it's a good term, useful term, the kind of thoughts you have about what this thing is and how we define it. Well, thanks, Carl. Uh, yes, I can understand how um, some people may not understand what this term means, just like a lot of terms in science or behavioral sciences. But really, it's it's a fairly simple concept when you when you come down to it. Um, by, as the word implies, translation implies some kind of movement and uh, or change or uh, over time. And I think uh, when we talk about translational research, we really are talking quite simply about how knowledge that's generated through research gets moved into, if you will, um, practice or policy. And, and that sounds like a fairly simple concept, but on the other hand, uh, we like to think of this as a very uh, complex and multi-phase process by which research gets moved into practice and policy. Uh, it's certainly, we know it doesn't happen automatically uh, or through some magical process, that there's uh, a lot of intentional processes involved with that and a lot of skill involved with moving uh, research to practice and policy. But that's generally what we're talking about. Yeah, an example I've read is um, uh, the concept that the way that research is now applied is you have hungry people who are standing by a road, and every once in a while a truck grows by and a a crate of melons or a live (laughs) chicken will fall off and people can use it. 
uh, and the idea is to make it more systematic, I guess, you know, to, to um, um, is that right? Like to have it be more of an intentional process where you either conduct research that will eventually have real world use or? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, th- I think um, it's, it's not a new idea that research has been used to inform uh, practice and policy. Um, but as you imply, that's been a somewhat haphazard process, or, it has a, or at least it's been a not very well understood process. And it clearly is an issue of how can we make it better. Um, and that the skills that are involved and the knowledge that's involved with the translational process is something we can understand better, something we can improve upon, uh, so it wouldn't be quite as haphazard as in the example you use. Um, is it conceived? So I think the origins of it, though, right, sort of developed in medicine. Is you know, I, I think a question that we get asked is how transferable is this from this medical model, or is that right that the concepts sort of emerge in those more more biomedical contexts? I, I think that's right. I mean, there's if you look historically, you could think of of other examples even prior to the more recent emphasis on translational research, which certainly has been driven by um, the medical field within the last 20, 25 years. Uh, but we sit here in, in a land-grant university at Cornell University, so uh, we're quite familiar with going back 100 years or more of the transfer of knowledge, say, in the agricultural uh, domain from, from testing out new seeds or types of apples, developing new strains of corn, and then taking that knowledge out to farmers and getting them to use that knowledge. So the, so the idea of translating research-based knowledge to the user uh, of that knowledge, whether it be a farmer or whether it be uh, a, a technician somewhere, uh, has been around a long time. Uh, but the most recent, in more recent years, it's gotten uh, a new look, if you will, and new life and, and much more resources in starting in the biomedical field and, and through agencies like the National Institute of Health. Yeah, I, I was thinking our location in the College of Human Ecology is named after someone named Martha Van Rensselaer, who started the science of home economics. And I remember a story about her that uh, there was infection being spread in farm wives' kitchens, and she went to one of the early biologists at Cornell and asked about the spread of germs and then developed you know, programs for keeping your counter clean. So I, I agree mm-hmm. that we've been doing this for a long time. One of the things I like the most about the concept of translational research, and one of the ways I argue for it, is that it honors both basic research and application. So Often, especially when I was being socialized in my graduate training, there was always a dichotomy, you know, people doing basic, people doing applied to where they published. I argue to people that it views both basic science. It says, keep on doing basic science, great, because we use basic science to test it in the real world. So if you're in a department with people doing basic science, you say, more power to you. I need to use um, what you're finding. And you also want people who do the you know, actual kind of community-based work. So I feel that it solves this basic applied conundrum to a certain extent. I also would say uh, that by testing theoretically or empirically grounded ideas in the real world, you can contribute to and publish in the very same journals. Mm-hmm. So that if I 
had done it's not if we had found that if you had certain kinds of social network components as a caregiver for a very ill older person you would do better and we were able to extend those ideas by manipulating them in an intervention and our articles were then published in the same kinds of journals that we would have published otherwise so as we talk about a definition i come back to this notion of expressly linking and creating a better marriage of science and service through linking basic research to application and then back to knowledge. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if that makes any sense to you. No, I mean, that, that, that circular process is, is very key and one that I think the more contemporary uh, um, notions or schematics, if you will, when you see you know, people trying to graph out or come up with a figure of translational research, they've, they've uh, abandoned this sort of linear left-to-right model, starting with basic research and ending up in application, to more circular kinds of ones where there's these feedback, feedback from the knowledge you gain from the, applic- the attempts to apply that knowledge and then what you learn from that uh, in terms of your theories and, and ideas about how the world works, basically, or how humans work. I mean, a good proponent of this is, I mean, we're sitting in the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. I mean, Yuri Bronfenbrenner was a strong proponent of this in his field of child development. Uh, he would often criticize uh, his colleagues in his field for developing very elaborate theories about how children uh, developed and how children developed, how they thought about the world and things, and and, and basing those theories on uh, bringing children into a laboratory, which was a strange situation for those children, having them do unfamiliar, strange tasks uh, uh, at the behest of strange people they didn't know, the experimenters, and then taking that knowledge and saying, well, here's our theory of how children actually um, uh, grow in the world. And he, and Yuri was very much of a proponent saying, well, that's fine. You can do your laboratory research like that. It's under very controlled conditions. Uh, but then take it out into the real world. Take it into a daycare center uh, and, and try to t- test that same theory within a context where there's children or in a family and say, are, are you seeing the same things and, and will you get the same results if you were testing that theory out in a real context in which kids live um, rather than in this kind of strange artificial environments that you've created in your laboratory? So it's the same kind of idea, and, and it can be a circular kind of thing, because you may uncover things in the real world, so to speak, um, that are fertile ground for testing in, in a more maybe controlled environment of the laboratory and then back again. So, um, so it's a symbiotic relationship rather than an either-or. I think that's a great way to sum it up. I think that, that really is a, the translational process. I think you may be going back and forth between more basic activities and then applying them. I often get asked how the concept of translational research differs from what we used to call applied research. And as someone who's a sociologist, people have set up this dichotomy of basic and applied research that we could try for iterator reliability. I have an answer myself, you know, for that, but I wonder, is it different somehow from applied research, or do we mean something different? Well, I don't know if there's a a big difference um, uh, between applied research and translational research, but only in the sense that um, uh, 
you know, our translational research can go all the way back to very basic fundamental research in the laboratory, for example. Uh, so in medicine, we think of translational research. Uh, it could be the starting point could be in a, a laboratory researchers with some fundamental biomedical or biological process. Um, and, and you could still think in terms of moving that knowledge forward in time, if you will, and thinking about applications of that fundamental knowledge. When I think of applied research, I think of you you're starting out with an applied question. Right, or just uh, program evaluation. Or something yeah. like program evaluation where and in, in the social and behavioral sciences, I think it's even it's more difficult to make a distinction between them because in the social and behavioral sciences, we're often talking about the applications are often, you know, interventions, community-based interventions, social programs, uh, social policies, and so forth. And we're not usually talking about fundamental laboratory research looking at, at understanding how the world works, for example, in a physical way. Um, we're thinking about things we do with people and for people and do those work or not. So that, I think the distinction breaks down a little bit at, at times, but I, th I think there are some distinctions. But. Right, and people are sometimes less clear about what basic research in the social science means because often there's a real-world context uh, for it too. Right. You know, I, I, was, I was curious, so as you, I, I think when a lot, if we could just tease out one last thing on the definitions, I think that when people think about it, they often think of the translation being from a body of theory uh, or empirical work to a practical application. And they don't think much beyond that. Uh, so the concept is like if I, you know, I work in aging, so is there basic research, say, on decision-making that I could then translate to how old people make decisions about their own care? Uh, and instead of just asking practitioners in the community for their ideas, I would go to this corpus of basic research and mine it for this. But now in translational research, people talk about additional stages and feedback and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. so, so am I right that this has been broadened significantly from that idea that you have scientists at a bench who, who, and, and then something gets transferred just into a treatment, and that's all that translational research is. Right. No, I, th I think that kind of linear model, if you will, from going from the basic research in the laboratory to some kind of practical application is a sort of outmoded concept because we often think now of the kind of it's a more circular process where you actually may begin your query within, say, a community or within a group of people and there's some use in mind to the, the research you're doing. You're not starting with just some theoretical notion or, or that's, that's uh, taken out of context and out of, uh, out of without any consideration of how that knowledge might be used in any practical sense. I like to there's a there's a author um, you may know, Dane Stokes, who wrote a, a book called Pasteur's Quadrant. And he makes a useful distinction between sort of basic research in a sort of very theoretical way, like uh, Bohr doing work on theoretical physics, for example, um, and someone who does um, on the totally on the other end who does very just applied work 
uh, without any consideration of the underlying theoretical mechanism, someone like Edison, who was an inventor. So all Edison was concerned with was, did, did something work? Did lots of experiments and failed a lot of times and said, can I just keep doing things until I find that something works? And when it works, I can see how I can sustain that and then bring it to market. So he was, he was an inventor more than a researcher. And someone in the middle was someone like Pasteur, uh, who uh, Stokes puts in the category of use-inspired research. I mean, Pasteur was seen as the father of microbiology, but his work was all done in the service of solving some practical problem. And in his case, initially, was around fermentation and, and people who were making, you know, fermented, you know, products of, like, cheeses and so forth. And that... That use beer too, right? And beer and so yeah. forth, right. Uh, so he always had a use in mind and some problem he was trying to solve, but in solving those problems, he uncovered a lot of fundamental knowledge about how these things were working and contributed to the field and the founding, really, of the field of microbiology as a basic science. So it's kind of, I like the idea of this notion of use-inspired research because that's a lot of what I think the translational researchers like us in this kind of center are trying to do. I want to underscore that for our listeners. It's Pasteur's Quadrant, which I do think that anybody who's interested in the relationship between research and real life, it's such an extraordinary book and really, I think, helps to answer some of the questions that we're talking about. Mm. You know, but with that in mind, John, I want to maybe just toss this question out in one um, um, other way. If we think of translational research as a relatively new concept, it's one, though, that has been really taken up in highly significant ways. So, so most of the major medical centers have uh, translational science centers, and these are funded in the 20 to $40 million range. I direct a center that's called a Translational Research on Aging. So once you have funding, you know, gets into the picture, things become even more important and compelling. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me the question... That, that needs to be answered in part two is, all right, uh, when a new concept comes to the fore, it enters a Darwinian struggle for survival with other concepts, and part of what makes it good is what problem it solves. If it's, you know, the game show Jeopardy and the answer is translational research, what's the problem it is, you know, it's really focused on, uh, you know, solving? Well, I, I think one of the... Fundamental problems, if you, if you broaden out your lens to, to the country and to our sort of national policies and what we're going to fund out of federal agencies and even in state and local government, I mean, part of the fundamental problem is, is this a what's works problem. That is, if we want to be efficient about how we spend our resources as a country or a county or a town, and we have limited resources and we want to solve certain problems, whether that's um, a, a health problem or public health issue or a social problem like drug, drug abuse or violence, uh, we, we, I think, naturally want to say we want to fund things that work. Uh, so one of the fundamental issues that people want to solve is, is what does work and how do we know it works? So I think part of the, especially at the, at the level of, of social innovations and programs and policies and, and clinical practices and so forth, um, 
So part of the and we've in a lot of those programs and policies have come online over the decades, you know, for reasons other than the underlying research that showed that they were effective. Um, there were political concerns or whatever that, that that generated the birth of a variety of programs and policies. Once people started digging into those, however, and starting asking the questions, well, how do we know these really work? Uh, what we often uncovered is a lot of these social programs or policies or practices or even clinical practices were seen to be not – there wasn't very good evidence that they actually work. So now I think there's been a, a much greater emphasis and push from the funders on down, but also from the ground up. Um, to uh, gather more a higher quality of evidence that what we do and how we spend our time and resources to promote, whether it's promoting public health in the general sense or the social good, however we decide that, is uh, is being, those resources are being well spent. So, so we're in an age of accountability to some extent in that regard. And I think that's pushing a lot of this in terms of federal funding and state funding, uh, which are now requiring that, uh, that those programs uh, demonstrate some efficacy in terms of what they're supposed to, what they claim to actually be doing. Right. I was thinking, I think it might have been Senator Bar former Senator Barbara Mikulski who really pushed a lot of this, who said, you know, we've spent billions of dollars on basic research on schizophrenia and on Alzheimer's, but there's still a lot of schizophrenics and people with Alzheimer's disease walking around. Hmm. What, like, um, why can't there be more of a connection between basic knowledge and what actual scientists are doing? Uh, you know, can I ask you, in the uh, world of translational research, is there and it might be one of your own, is there a study for you that sort of encapsulates good translational research or a kind of study? Is there um, um, something that comes to mind that if someone said, okay, I get the general definition, but what's an example of, of a good translational research study? Well, at, at the risk of... of, of um uh, use an example I'm familiar with because well, I, I worked. Well, I was going to prompt you for that very example. If, um, yeah. Well, I've, I've had the I've had the good fortune over the last 20 years or so to to work with the developer of a program, David Olds, who's at now at the University of Denver, on the Nurse Family Partnership Program. Um, this is a good example because it, it, it was use-inspired research in the sense that David started this work back in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, with the idea of improving maternal and child health outcomes, especially for young, um, unwed, poor mothers having their first kids. Uh, and there were a number of programs around at that point, but not a lot of evidence that these were very effective in terms of, of uh, improving the outcomes and the life chances of mothers having uh, young mothers having children who don't have a lot of resources and a lot of preparation for that role. Um, so David, together with some other folks, um, developed a model that involved home visitation by nurses uh, starting prenatally and, and extending to uh, the child's second birthday. And rather than just implement that program and then advocate for it, um, David had the foresight to say that we really needed evidence that this program worked before it was implemented in any more general way. So he, he uh, initiated a, a randomized clinical trial, which we're familiar with in the medical field, which we usually associate with drug trials and so forth. Uh, but he tested, his goal was to test out this 
program in a local community near near us in Elmira, New York, uh, with a limited number of people uh, randomly assigning uh, these young mothers to sort of a treatment-as-usual group versus this new innovation, this Nurse Family Partnership Program. Uh, the reason that's interesting, not just from the results of that one trial, which which took place, and there was some good results from that trial. To, he followed the mothers and children for a few years after the end of the program, collected lots of data, um, and showed some promising effects. Now, some people wanted to take those initial findings and and generalize and, and implement. Just run with it. Just run with it. So we have one trial, we have a limited trial with, say, 400 people. It looks pretty good. We'll run with that program. I think to David's credit, he said, well, wait a minute. This was one trial in one community. Maybe this won't necessarily work somewhere else. So he advocated for a replication of the trial, which he did in Memphis, Tennessee, a totally different ecology, totally different population ethnically and culturally, and then a third trial in Denver some years later and then compared the results of those trials. And it was only then that once there was some consistency of findings across context and place and people and time, was he comfortable saying, okay, now we can take that, that data to, to scale and try to offer that program to a lot more communities. Uh, it's frustrating in some way because that takes years to do, and it's not a quick fix. And lots of people want quick fixes, and in the social and behavioral area, in, in health area, usually there's not quick fixes. The reason this was so important to um, to do these kind of very rigorous efficacy trials, if you call them, you know, looking at the actual effects of the program, um, was in recent years uh, that became the basis for federal policy under the Affordable Care Act. So there's now funds available through the Affordable Care Act, and even within this administration, they just approved a refunding of this program for um, evidence-based home visiting programs. Um, for, um, for um, you know, um, low-resource families. So it's really over the course of two decades or more, it's moved from through a lot of experimental evidence into being kind of enshrined in policy to a certain extent with actual money behind it. Yeah, it's, that's a nice example of how research uh, done right and replicated and so forth uh, works its way into the policy realm. And it wasn't easy and it took a long time. The other piece of this example, though, is that, um, again, there, I think some of the foresight of David and his colleagues, and I, I happen to work on some of the longitudinal follow-up study of the Elmira trial, uh, but part of, often what happens in translational research is, is people do programs, they might even evaluate them, might even find some positive effects but they don't know how to take it the next step. The, the whole diffusion of that innovation into a larger, larger set of communities and audiences uh, with some sort of fidelity to the original model is often where these programs sort of fall down uh, and where they, they never get picked up and they never get disseminated. So part of the agenda of translational research is on the implementation and dissemination mm -hmm. side. And there's a whole kind of subfields and sciences of implementation, implementation dissemination. Now, is this what people have now called type two and sometimes type three translational research? Whatever yeah. exactly that is. Yeah, there's there's different there's different schemes. Some are type three, type four, type two. But it's basically after these trials, it shows that there's some benefits to a program. Uh, how do you then take it to the next step? How do you, uh, how do you uh, implement it in a wider uh, set of, of contexts? Um, 
And there's different ways, and, and often the social and behavioral sciences or even public health researchers don't, aren't very well trained at that because it takes a lot of other skills like marketing and, and budgeting and, and building organizations and training and so forth. The, 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 the scientists who did the original studies aren't very necessarily good at it. So it's a very multidisciplinary enterprise. Uh, the, the way Nurse Family Partnership did that is to actually – uh, establish a whole separate organization of 501c3 not-for-profit mm -hmm. with its own board of directors and, and, and CEO and so forth, which is the training arm and the, and the support arm of localities for localities who want to start this program. So it's not the original researcher who's doing that. It's, it's a whole other organization with its own staff and, and has expertise in how to do that. Um, and there's, so there's various models for this, and we're still experimenting for what's the best model for, for disseminating and implementing more widely successful models because that's often where things go wrong. So I think you've touched on what seemed to me to be a good way to think of the core components that, you know, there's, there's somebody of basic re research that you might, you know, rely on that you, know, you apply a rigorous research designs and then a component of this is attention to diffusion and to uh, the sustainability of programs. By the way, it'd be good fodder for another podcast, but I would absolutely agree with you. I think that uh, any practitioner who reads a journal article and wants a manual for, at least in my field, a lot of the programs that are published can't find that anywhere. You know, there's almost no attempt often after a grant runs out to continue to, to sustain a program. So I think you're absolutely right. That's one place where it gets, um, it really falls by the wayside. Uh, you know, just to follow up a bit on what you were saying, if someone thinks of themselves as doing translational research, are they likely to use um, a certain kinds of research designs more than, uh, you know, other ones? Or is it a different way of doing research or maybe more of a, of a different orientation towards it? I mean, in, in some ways, it strikes me that the actual methods are just good scientific methods. Mm -hmm. so, so you aren't using a different kind of method um, than you would otherwise. No, I think that's right. I, I think, you know, good, good, good research and good science is good research and good science. I mean, and I, I, so I think some of the same principles of the scientific method and the kind of care you would take uh, with doing any kind of research apply here as well. I think the difference is, is you're often doing this in a very um, different context with different challenges, as you know in, in your work, uh, working, for example, with uh, community partners, working with practitioners, I mean, service providers. These are folks that are sort of active partners in the process with you. So even though you say, well, I still am concerned with things like measurement and, you know, how my concepts are conceived and measured, for example, um, often that's a sort of negotiated process with the people you're working with or who the end users are, you know, in terms of what their concerns are and what – uh, how they and they may come to the table with ideas and so forth. So it's usually much more of a collaborative process, especially if you have some end goal in mind in terms of a user group or a practitioner group or something of that sort. Uh, and you're not just doing it for your own edification or because you're interested in that issue. And you can make all the decisions about that. 
because if you want things to be disseminated afterwards, you have to sort of set that up from the beginning, and you have to set up those relationships and build those trusting relationships with the people you want to disseminate this to. So they become partners. So I think sometimes, even though the methods of doing research, whether it's a randomized clinical trial or a good quasi-experiment, uh, or even observational studies like, a, 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 say, a needs assessment in a community which revo- involves a survey or doing some longitudinal survey or something, you know, those methodological issues still hold, mm-hmm. but you're often doing it in a context that involves other people and who are not researchers, and, and that changes the, the nature of the enterprise to some extent. Yeah, you know, I wonder if... Uh if to be a trans, to do translational research, it strikes me that you either have to like to do that kind of thing, or you have to have somebody who's working with you who does. So I would say that for me, I I, um, I was trained in a very traditional and theoretical department of sociology, and there were lots of things that I had to learn as I wanted to do this. One has to do with actually the statistical methods. I wasn't trained in the kind of methods that people used to rigorously evaluate interventions um, and have had to often bring on a a statistical consultant to help to to tease out some of those things. And I also think that if you start to do this kind of work, for for me, working in close collaboration with uh, the practice community and with people in community agencies is one of the really enjoyable aspects of it. So it's really fun. It's the kind of thing that is energizing rather than using, you know, doing experiment after experiment, say, on college undergraduates. It's the kind of thing I think that people begin to like. And at the risk of going on too long myself, I will say I've noticed something in my term as directorship, as director of the Bronfenbrenner Center, um, namely that we get lots of faculty who start to come to us right after tenure. Um, but they've been writing articles for people sometimes in a subfield of a subfield of a subfield and decide they want to apply their models, methods, or theories you know, into real-world settings. And this notion of what do you have to help them do? What do they really need to know? And as part of that has really come up in our work. And it sounds like, so part of it might be research design, part of it's dissemination. I mean, I don't know, like for the budding translational researcher, is there stuff that you think they really need to know, be aware of, um, be considering when they venture out of the lab and into more real world settings? Well, I, I, I think one of the issues, and in, in, in maybe some uh, people in their graduate training and their early careers are in this kind of environment and others aren't, because we're, we're often in a we're often socialized to be independent thinkers and, and generate our own research program and so forth. Some people are in different fields or subfields where they're much more collaborative and multidisciplinary. Um, but in translational research, is sort of inherently collaborative and multidisciplinary. So one of the things you have to learn, I think, is that, A, you don't make all the decisions, um, and it's a negotiated process often, and you have to make compromises, um, and it takes longer than you'd ever think it would take. So there's a certain and – a, and, a, and a fair amount of it is, is uh, built on relationships and relationship issues. And that seems sort of subjective and kind of squishy, but whenever we look at 
um, things like dissemination of programs or implementation of successful programs, you say, well, what are the factors that impact the successful implementation of programs, say, in, an, in a large organization like a hospital or something or a school system? A lot of that is, you know, some of it is methodological, having the good data, the best data you can generate and so forth, and being able to present that data in a way that people can understand. But often it's relationship issues, and, and those are things that, you know, and those happen over time, and they're built on things like trust and mutual respect and ability to meet people on their terms and talk their language. Um, and, and those are sort of subjective, you know, soft skills, if you will. <laughs> the hard skills are the methodological stuff. You can learn your statistics and you can learn research design. The soft skills, it's, a, it's like what makes for a successful student in school or, a, a, you know, a toddler transitioning to young, adult, young uh, to adolescence or something. It's, it's not just learning, reading, and writing, but it's a lot of these soft skills about, you know, uh, you know, uh, impulse control and things of that sort. It's the same in this world, I think. You, you really have to pay attention to the human side of this because you're often working with organizations or people or agencies or communities that they're not starting from scratch. I mean, they have a history, and they've, they've been already trying to deal with these issues for years. Maybe they've now brought you in as a partner because they said, well, maybe we should partner with University X and bring the researchers in, and we can maybe get a better handle on this problem that we're having. But they usually have certain ideas themselves. They've tried certain things. Uh, you aren't the first uh, academic they've partnered with over time. They have a history. Um, all those things are the kind of soft things that are, as it turns out, become very important in the translational process. And if you ignore those and don't pay attention to them, you're often likely to fail. And, you know, I would add that the one thing that, that we try to say to people here, too, is if you know you're not that person, work with somebody who is, right. if you want to. So I have worked with colleagues who, uh, the first time I brought them into a meeting with the agency, they laid down the law about every aspect of the research design, what the person would have to do. And you, and you realize you have to intervene in that as well. So I think good people can also partner with others. Yeah. You know, be, uh, before our time is up, I know, you know you've been a center director. There was a center called the Family Life Development Center, which merged with another center to become the Bronfenbrenner Center. And then you directed the Bronfenbrenner Center for a number of years. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are about, in general, promoting translational research and what centers do and can do and... Well, I, th I think there's a number of things. Um, I, th I think to do translational research well, you, you need both an infrastructure, if you will. You need a supporting infrastructure um, that, uh, academic, in our case, academic uh, researchers uh, can avail themselves of that will help promote that kind of work. And that may be things like providing opportunities uh, for faculty and, and students to connect to community-based organizations or to uh, practice networks or to um, policy uh, people. Uh, you know, so building those connections, and those connections, as I said, they take time to develop. They don't happen overnight. There's a certain amount of sustaining of those, um, and, and so there's, they're mutually beneficial. Um, 
so so we don't promote kind of one and done you know research projects where we, someone would come to us and say, "Gee, I'd like to go and and and, and do research on a bunch of old people and 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 can you can you hook me up with these community agencies and I'll go in and I'll do my research and I'll leave." Um, those things usually don't sustain themselves very well because, you know, it's a lot of work on the part of agencies or organizations to let you in the door and get you up and running. And, and I think it's a much better um, uh, relationship and a much more fruitful relationship if you can build those relationships over time and keep kind of going back, uh, back and forth between the agency or organization and, or community and, and your institution as a, as a, in our case, a center. So we've had several very long-term relationships uh, with investigators here, with certain practice settings or certain groups of providers and so forth over time, which has resulted in a number of different projects. Uh, so we try to stimulate and, and encourage those, that kind of work as a center. Uh, so, and there's a certain amount of, I think, in, as you said, investigator development and training that's involved. So, so as you know, we not give traditional talks here, but we also do workshops and sort of how-to type of, of workshops in terms of giving, whether it's graduate students or faculty, the tools they need to engage in this kind of work. Um, so we like to think of ourselves as a setting for that kind of activity. Um, and I think generally we see, ourse we see ourselves uh, in, in also providing the kind of infrastructure support for helping people develop grants in this, of this kind and getting things funded, but also generally as a sort of think tank, if you will, as for sort of innovative practices and being a, a sort of central location on campus where people think of us doing this kind of work and, and testing out innovative ways of doing that. So I think there's a number of functions we can play as a center to promote translational research. You know, and I think it's those activities that help to a certain extent circling back with the definitional issue. So I would say, for example, we've had a person who's done basic research on kids' transition to puberty in laboratory experiments and at work who then applied them in a 4-H camp. So in the actual sort of camp situation, one of, um, another one of our colleagues had done basic research on decision-making, and when given help and assistance, started looking at decision-making around issues like joint uh, replacement and medication use in, both, uh, um, in older people. In both cases, uh, the translation of their model into a real-world setting allowed them to publish scientifically and also led to additional gain. So I think that, you know, the idea of what this whole enterprise is feels to me like this both-and situation where you continue to use high-level research methods and models, but you do it in a context that provides both end-user benefits and scientific benefits. Yeah, I, I think there's a... There's a um, maybe an old leftover notion that somehow this work is less rigorous than than sort of basic laboratory based research. And I think anybody that's done this kind of work is, knows from experience that if anything, it's more more demanding and more and can be just as rigorous by scientific standards um, as as your basic laboratory based research. 
So, um, and can appear in outlets for those concerned with their academic careers, and so we can appear in outlets that are every more every bit as prestigious as 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 the ones that people are familiar with. So, so there's there's no there's no drop off in the potential rigor and value and respect that that science is generating, just because you're now in a more translational mode. I think, and it's also, I would say, you know, um, as an aside, people can still do the kind of work they're interested in and may increase their chances of funding, too, if it has some Mm -hmm. kind of translational component. Well, you know, as our time is coming to a close, I would like to ask, you know, as you've looked at this, uh, you know, is there some way that you would like to see this field go if you could wave a magic wand? Are there... Uh, you know, a, a change or changes or ways to promote the concept of translational research that spring to mind or particular new directions you think are especially promising for people to pursue? Well, that's a good question. Um, probably a, a, a number of things uh, other than the obvious ones of more funding and so forth. Um, I think, you know, fields that have been kind of siloed over the years, and we, we've both grown up in this, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I came out of a very experimental psychology kind of program. You came out of a very more traditional sociology program. Those programs probably never kind of taught or encouraged to talk to one another. I actually remember, you know, as a graduate student, and I, I said to one of my, uh, one of the mentors on my doctoral committee that I was going to take this sociology course and survey research over across campus, and he kind of looked puzzled at me. as like, why would I ever want to do such a thing? Um, so I think, you know, dis- our disciplines, you know, breaking down those barriers and, and thinking in a truly multidisciplinary world and that most of the problems that we're dealing with, real-world problems or social issues, are ones that demand kind of a multidisciplinary approach to that. That will require, you know, different ways of thinking and organizing ourselves um, than we may have, some of us may have grown up with. And I think we're seeing that, and we're, and we're seeing some of that, some of those divisions and boundaries sort of break down. Um, I it's. I, I think there's going to be a push and a pull. I mean, I think some of it will come from the disciplines themselves, the academic disciplines, and some of it's going to be uh, enforced from from outside because I think people, agencies, and governments, and so forth, are demanding this kind of work in order to promote certain social policies or approve certain laws or so forth. There's a lot more questions being asked about whether things work or not. So the whole evidence-based movement, if you will, is sort of out of the barn, if you will. We're not going to put that back in the barn um, just because we are not, you know, trained to do this. So we're not, you know, used to doing that kind of work um, because the outside funders and whether it's the government or foundations or uh, state agencies are demanding um, that kind of information and that kind of evidence, and they're going to be turning to us for that. So I, I think there's going to be you know pushes and pulls here. You know we'll do it because we think it's it's the right thing to do and it feels good, uh, but we'll also be required to do it for the people who fund our positions and so forth. They're going to be saying, well, how does that work you're doing actually impact on human health or well-being of our citizens and so forth, and how can you prove that that's the case? 
I think we're living in a world now where this whole notion of evidence and what is facts is kind of up for grabs to some extent. So I think it's a very challenging time for us to, to But to I also it. think a really important time for people to stay the course in this. You know? Absolutely. And, and I, too, am really encouraged by seeing more people get into these kinds of approaches and looking to link you know, their scientific agendas with sort of real-world agendas, but continue to do so in a real, uh, in a seriously scientific way. Well, uh, John Eckenrode, it's been an extraordinary pleasure to have you with us on this extended podcast episode of Doing Translational Research. We'd like to encourage all of you to join us for episode number 21 soon, and it's been a great pleasure to have you here with us. Well, thanks, Carr. It's been a lot of fun. information about translational research or the work of the Bronfenbrenner Center, please visit www.bctr.cornell.edu.